episode 170 of the Cricket Hair Weekly. Now, as you'll know, if you're a regular viewer, we all always record on a Sunday. Well, we sometimes record on a Saturday. Uh, we occasionally record on a Monday, but it's a Tuesday, what's going on? Uh, well, we want to wait until the end of the test um, because we've just finished the test and we're still in Nottingham. Um, so the test is over now. But what happened yesterday afternoon was we got word that a huge story was going to break at midnight last night. Um, so at one minute past midnight, the Commission for Equity in Cricket released its report, um, which we've been waiting for for months and months and months. Um, and so we wanted to be able to talk about that um, on, on the broadcast today. And that's what we're going to be coming back to in the kind of second part, in part two. Uh, but first of all, the test. Um, we've, we've just finished it. We, we just about struggled up this morning on, on the morning after our first ever five day test covering women's cricket. Um, and it's been quite a run, hasn't it, Raf? Yeah, absolutely. We've had lots of records broken. Um, I think highest run rate ever in a test. We've had a double century from Tammy Beaumont. We had um, a couple of other centuries in the game. We've had um, a couple of bowlers taking 10 wickets. Um, and it has been a, a bit of a roller coaster ride. And, and I will say that all of the talk for the first three days actually was, um, oh, dead pitch. They've, ru they've ruined it by creating a dead pitch. We're never going to have uh, never going to have 20 wickets. Um, on each team fall on this pitch. Um, we need a sixth day. Yeah, we need a sixth day and also oh, five days it's just going to peter out into a very boring draw. Then um, Sunday, day four happened and it was like, oh, <laughs> wickets, that's what they are. <laughs> um, and so yeah, it was just, you know, all of my, the stuff below the line on The Guardian for the first three days was how do we um, generate more exciting women's tests and how do we make it more of an even contest between bat and ball. But in the end, ultimately, we didn't even need most of the fifth day. Okay, that was partly because of some probable frailties in the England uh, mentality of the way that they were batting against Australia. But um, actually, it was really exciting. And both captains reflected at the end that having that fifth day was great because it meant that the match could come to a natural conclusion rather than them having to manufacture a result, as has always been the case before. Yeah, 20 wickets taken in the test, culminating with a fantastic performance by Ash Gardner on the final day. Now, Ash Gardner, you spoke to her in, in the press conference at the end of day four, and what did she say to you, Raf? She said that spin was going to play, play a big role, Oh, didn't she? yeah, spin going to play um, a big role, and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I wonder if England are listening. <laughs> and, well, you know, I wonder if Ash Gardner was listening to Ash Gardner's press conference because she came back on the final day and cleaned up all the wickets on the final day. Yeah. She ended up with, with eight wickets in the innings, 13 wickets in the match, was it? Yeah, uh, 12, Four I think. wickets in the match. Yeah. Um, so an absolutely amazing performance and just, you know, eclipsing even the performances of, of Tammy Beaumont and Sophie Eccleston, both yeah. of whom were, were awesome as well. But, I mean, England like weird thing with picking their 11 because and then Sophie Eccleston took like almost all the wickets um and just bowled almost for the whole of both of the both of the Australia innings um it was a phenomenal effort by her but you've got to kind of say England really strange tactics to go into that test with one frontline spinner and I know you'd reflected in your cricket her piece that you that you thought that John Lewis had fundamentally misread the pitch yeah I, I don't really understand it particularly and I, uh... I mean, he, they, they continued to claim it, you know, when they were doing the media rounds last night that they hadn't, hadn't misread things, they got all the big calls right. Yeah. But I mean, at the end of the day, John Lewis played 250 first-class games, red ball games in England. He's played a number of games at Trent Bridge. Um, and, and yet they got it so hopelessly mm -hmm. wrong. And it was Australia that you know, were able to you know, use their kind of third spinner almost. Um, although Ashley Gardner is really not a third spinner. I mean, she's, Australia treat her as a proper frontline bowler, quite rightly, yeah. because of her performance. 
but you know she she was she was the in a way the third spinner mm. and you know they were able to ignore the other Alana King didn't bowl at all in the last yeah, morning exactly um, nor did Jess Jonathan and apparently so, Alana King was a bit um, bit uh, annoyed about that because um, she was about to be brought on to bowl and then Australia or Ash Gardner took the last two wickets and Kingy was a bit like oh hang on <laughs> so yeah they really did wrap up things very uh, very quickly on the fifth day um, Australia but ultimately we did need that that fifth day despite the fact that we've had the best weather for a women's test in um and since i can remember actually um sid should all women's tests be five days well um i mean okay the, the first thing to, to state is that they're not going to be because yeah. australia have already scheduled their test against india at the WACA. Um, South Africa, I think. Oh, sorry. Yes, you're right. South Africa, sorry. India, India are playing England in a test at a very similar time. Uh, sorry. So they've scheduled that test at the mm. WACA. That's going to be four days. I'm not sure about the England-India test. Um, but, you know, going forward, we're still going to have some four-day tests. Yeah, but you made an interesting point yesterday, Raf. Yeah, well, what I was saying was that the fifth day has been brilliant um, and it's obviously generated a lot of interest in this match. Um, and I don't see any reason why all women's ashes tests now shouldn't be five days because they're the kind of almost still the centrepiece of the women's test calendar, aren't they? Yeah, and, and ECB uh, and have laid down a market. They now. have, exactly. And we were saying yesterday in the press box that so much of the developments and the advancements in women's cricket come about when um, the ECB does something and Cricket Australia goes, well, we, why aren't we doing that? And we're going to be one better. And then the ECB go, well, they're doing that now. We've got to be one better than them. So it's this kind of one-upmanship or one-up-womanship one up um, that, that takes place between the two boards. So I do think now that, um, as you say, ECB have laid down a marker, Ashes tests are, are much more likely to all be five days. Don't see any reason why that shouldn't be the case. The reason that I've always been a little bit reluctant to push for five-day women's test cricket, though, is because I've been worried that it will put admin the administrators from other boards off actually staging more tests. Um, because they'll go, well, it's not just finding the resources for four days, we've got to find them for five days. I'd rather that we accept that some women's tests will still be four days, because then we will see the likes of India, South Africa, potentially even New Zealand, if somebody can knock the heads together of some people at New Zealand cricket playing tests. And that's really important to kind of revive the format going forwards. So as I said on Twitter, let's not make the perfect five days be the enemy of the good four days. Okay, now we've had a few questions from, from our friends on yeah. Twitter and things on social media, so what are people asking, Raph? Okay, we did have a question from James, um, who said, lots of big tour groups of Australia fans at Edgbaston, so for the men's test. I assume they'll be at Lords next week for the second men's test, so why aren't they there in numbers at Trent Bridge? I actually thought that comment was a little bit unfair, because we have a record crowd for a women's test. Yeah, and there were some parts of Australia, yeah, there were. so some people had made the trip. Yeah, um, we saw Diane Valley. Hello, Diane! <laughs> And there were some, um, you know, former players who travelled over from Australia as well. Yeah, and there were there were ordinary fans that were clearly the people that had come over yeah. from men. So some people have made the trip uh, across the Midlands. You know, I went a bit a long way across the Midlands. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there be bears apparently. <laughs> um, no, I mean the, the honest answer to this is that yeah, it, I mean, it was a really good crowd. But I think we've we've you know we've still got some way to go before the tour groups mm. you know are doing things like that. And I'm guessing that what they what they've organised is like the tourist trip bit for the tourists for the. Yeah. Um, yeah, you see what I'm going. They've, they've be, gone and done touristing the on the sightseeing. So, the five-day men's test and then between and that then they'll be doing sightseeing and yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, but definitely there were some people there. So some people did make that trip. Okay. Um, Richard. 
Actually, we've got a couple of questions um, on a similar point, but Richard says, Hi Raf, have you any thoughts about how Red Bull cricket could fit into the domestic schedule? Um, three three-day games in a group of four and then a final maybe, it's just knowing where it would fit into the current calendar. Um, and we did also have um, Josef ask a question about should the test playing countries or do the test playing countries need to announce a domestic multi-day competition in the next five years, even if it means starting small? I guess let's think about the, the English context, Sid. Yeah, well, I think that the that getting the, the domestic players playing um, Red Bull cricket mm. is, is a really important thing. And it's a really important thing just from a selfish perspective of the ECB. Here's how you make the case to the ECB. Um, you know, we'll see what we see in the next couple of weeks, but my guess is that actually that the test will be as close as England get to winning the Ashes. England weren't a million miles away in the test, um, and yeah. I think they had, a, they had a, there was a genuine chance they could have Absolutely. won that game if things Absolutely. had gone a little bit differently. Yeah. So the test is where England can kind of get ahead in the Ashes. So if we promote the Red Bull game into the domestic level, and we, if we start playing, you know, perhaps initially just three Red Bull games a season, maybe just North, North v South games, so, you know, get the next level of players involved in playing them, then that is going to give an, the England team of three years' time or five years' time an edge going into that test okay. match, and that's how you select the ECB. Okay. You say, if you want to beat the Aussies, we need to win the test, um, so let's promote that that red ball cricket at the, at the domestic level and let's because it's not going to be massively expensive to do because we have got enough full-time professionals to be able to, to to do that yeah and the other thing is that red ball domestic cricket is not really on the agenda in australia at all so i think we've even had this conversation before that actually if if england can get ahead by doing that then it does put stamp really stand them in good stead because of course the test is still worth four points and there's now been a lot of talk about whether or not that should be the case because Australia have gone 4-0 up and England are left uh, needing to win um, five out of the six remaining white ball games, which just feels a ridiculous prospect that's never going to happen in a million years. Um, but the, you know, the test remains the centrepiece of the Ashes, it's very important. Yeah, although of course, if England introduced red ball cricket, as just as you mentioned earlier, that would be the, would be the biggest thing that would make Australia yeah. go, oh, maybe we should introduce yeah. red ball cricket. Yeah, you just players. wait. You just so. wait, Sid. It's great, isn't it? Brilliant. Um, and we had a question from Thomas. Um, oh, okay. We've sort of we have sort of just answered this. He says, with England a successful in the T20s and giving a few of our T20 players practice. So England they have been playing this series against Australia eh, and they've won every game. Um, he says, might we have a good chance um, in the Ashes T20s of taking one or even two matches, particularly if there's rowdy home support at the big stadia? We know lots of tickets have been sold. We've just written off England's chances of winning a series, but I suppose this is a slightly separate question. Could they take one or two games in the, in the white ball stuff? Well, it's, it's true that England and A have done very well. Mm. I think that that is a very different A side to Australia's A side. There's been a lot more caps in the England A team. Um, so a lot more England, basically England have been sending players to kind of warm up potentially ahead of the, the T20 series. So your likes of, you know, Maya Boucher, Alice Capsey, Lauren Winfield-Hill has been playing, which has an absolute pile of caps. Whereas the Australia A team has contained more players who, the, who are their kind of next generation players. Yeah. Um, so they've treated it a little bit differently. So it's perhaps unsurprisingly that England have won that. I don't think we're expecting any huge surprise from the T20 squad that's being announced no. later today. Um, so, you know... Well, we're expecting Capsie back, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, I, um, I mean, that, that would seem very yeah. likely. And in terms of the, the test squad, um, who might get 
sent back to their yeah, regions. Yeah, there was a big hint in the press conference that yeah. Lauren Filer, you know, wasn't going to remain with the squad for the yeah. 220s I and mean, so she'll go back to yeah. that. John Lewis basically said, oh, we see her very much as a test player. But not convinced that's a great thing that you really want to hear if you are a, a professional female cricketer, given that they play like one or two tests a year. But that is what he said nonetheless. So not necessarily expecting to see her in the in the white ball stuff. But hey, she's made a test debut and um, taken a few wickets. She's got more test caps than I'll ever get. And she's got, yeah, she's also got Elise Perry out twice, which is more than most cricketers in the world can say so not a bad game for her anyway um yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens in yeah the i mean the bottom line is that um you know this as time <laughs> has moved on um and the current stat you know at time of writing so to speak is that australia have lost one white ball game in the last two years wow can you really see them losing five in the next couple that of weeks seem very likely obviously england and particularly heather knight have still got to talk a good game but yeah it doesn't seem very likely does it Right, shall we move on to Part the big two. one, Raph? Yeah. So, um, you know, tell, tell, tell the viewers initially, because a lot of the viewers overseas won't mm. really be aware of, you know, how, how do we get here? What is the Commission for Equity in Cricket? And how did they end up writing a report which was delivered last night? Okay, um, well, the Commission was actually um, sort of set up and put in place by the ECB, um, who, you know, it's, it was a... a a really positive move by them actually because there aren't that many national governing bodies of sport in this country or globally who I suspect would open themselves up to this um, level of, of critique um, but nonetheless the ECB did commission this I believe it was a couple of years ago um, at the height of the um, Azim Rafiq uh, kind of difficulties um, a lot of stuff was coming out um, about uh, racist things that had been said um, about racist incidents which had taken place um, and the ECB decided to commission um, the, the, this um, group of people to um, take loads of evidence. So they've spoken to people across the game um, about different um, types of discrimination in cricket. So it looks at gender discrimination, but also obviously racism, um, racial discrimination, um, and socioeconomic difficulties as well. So socioeconomic discrimination, so class. Yeah. Now, we're going to talk in particular about the, the aspect that as it p pertains to women's cricket, yeah. but it's really important to acknowledge up front that um, the report um, is about all forms of discrimination and the report um, goes into an awful lot of detail about um, race discrimination and class discrimination, mm -hmm. about the kind of dominance of the public schools and the dominance of, you know, white people within, within the game. Um, and those two things are really important. Um, but what we're going to do, because you know we focus on the women's game, we're just going to focus on on the aspects of the report that pertain to the women's game. Mm -hmm. So, and there's really kind of two kind of chunks to it. There's there's some stuff about governance, about the way the sport is run, which we'll get to in a minute. But let's first talk about pay, because there's some quite radical re mm. uh, recommendations, isn't there? And in fact, some of these um, potentially started with you, Raf, because you had a conversation with the the people from the Commission for e Equity. And I was in the other room kind of, you know, earwigging, if you like. I could hear what you were saying. I couldn't hear what was being said to you. Um, and you were urging that the ECB should move to 100% equal pay, um, you know, within the next few years. Yeah. That's, that's absolute equal pay. So the women in 100 earning exactly the same as the men, earning the same appearance fees, match fees, base contract rates, mm -hmm. marketing money, all of that stuff. And you came out of there and I was like, the commission, I'm going to recommend <laughs> that. That's that's. That would be going far too far. These people will clearly have been selected very carefully to ensure they won't recommend anything too radical. And yet, 
Rough. Yeah, well, they have indeed recommended it. Um, I was, we got a, a hold of an advanced copy of the report yesterday, didn't we? And we were both flicking through and sort of reading bits out to one another um, in just, we were just absolutely flabbergasted because it is, um, it's actually quite difficult reading in places. Um, it's not that I'm necessarily surprised by what I've read um, because I knew that a lot of this was going on, but it's so rare that, um, that you actually read a report where they tell you what's really going on. Because so often these things um, kind of are commissioned um, and they become more of a PR exercise. Um, and they also become a kind of, well, um, you know, there are little pockets of the game that maybe have a bit of a problem, but overall everything's, everything's rosy in the garden. This is the complete opposite of that. This says that, um, I mean, just thinking about the sexism and the misogyny aspect, it says it's totally rife it's everywhere across the game. There are no pockets of the game that really escape from this um, this critique. Um, that women's cricket is routinely marginalised. Um, women's teams routinely face discrimination, um, and there's some really horrible um, stories in there about the kind of discrimination that people are facing across the game in terms of if you're a female umpire, a female coach, a female player, and you're trying to just go about your business in women's cricket, in cricket, as a woman, and you can't because there are all of these, as they label them, type Ks, these um, white, middle-class, affluent men of a certain age who run cricket and who rule cricket and who just across England and Wales cricket are the ones in charge. So you can't escape them. Sorry, that doesn't really answer your question about, about pay. Okay, so what, what, what recommendations yeah. has, have been made about pay in the end? Well, incredibly radical um, to a, to an absolutely stupefying extent. I mean, they have. I, I did give evidence, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take credit for the fact that they've that this this recommendation for equal pay has been made because I'm sure there were lots of people also recommending this. But it was something I said that you you know we need to have. I think I said equal pay for all international cricketers and all domestic cricketers within ten years or something like that. So they've actually gone with a, a an even shorter time frame than that. So um, all pay needs to be equal across domestic cricket by 2029 and all pay needs to be equal across international cricket so all England cricketers paid the same um, across 2030. Now there's a small caveat which is that it's average pay and that the, the Commission accept that some cricketers will you know some cricketers will be paid more and some might be paid less but average pay and it's not just you know we've been really critical haven't we of like oh New Zealand cricket or the BCCI going we've got equal pay when all it is is equal match fees. This is not just equal match fees although it is that it's equal salaries equal salaries and also equal commercial pay so they've got to make sure that the commercial deals that are in place for the men's and women's cricket teams are the same. Yeah, so they can't argue, basically, the Commission has given them no loopholes no. to argue, oh, well, Ben Stokes is of more commercial value, yeah. therefore we'll give him a separate exactly. commercial contract. Which is always but the excuse. They've really explicitly gone, you, yeah. you, you pre-empted any of that, you can't do that, guys. If, you, if you're if you going to have equal pay, it has to be properly, genuinely equal. Yeah, and in uh, the hundred... The hundred's got to be equal by twenty twenty five. Twenty twenty five. This is going to cost. Yes. This is going to. I work this out. This is going to cost the ECB something in the region of six million pounds per year. Well, that, but that's it. But that's you're talking about if they if. raise the women's salaries to meet the men's, aren't yeah. you? So now, of course, there's another option. Yeah. Well, as I said in the Guardian piece, you, you know, you take from Peter and you give it to Pauline. So you lower the men's 
and then you raise the women's and that's where you get the money from. I did also say that amongst the type K's who are running English cricket, that's going to go down like a bucket of cold sick. So we await the amongst ECBs. Amongst the male players. I mean, the trouble yes, is that, they're yes. all, they, that only this year, yeah. they've had to raise the salaries for yeah. a lot of the male players. They've raised the salaries for members of the England white ball squad to, to play in the 100 because members of the England white ball squad were going, oh, no, I can't be bothered. But so, I mean, I, yeah, but I, we were very critical of that. So yeah. we, are, we are not saying that we don't support these recommendations. We do. We're just, our concern is how the ECB responds. Yeah, our concern the, is that the ECB just says, turns around and says, I'm sorry, but that's not possible. But that's not the commission's responsibility. The commissioner, a lobbying group, ultimately, who have to fight for change. And we're yeah. prepared to support them in fighting for change. So yeah. it's radical, but it's really important. And, and the battle's not won, is it? Because no. the ECB are under no obligation, are they, Raph, to, to, to implement these recommendations? No, they aren't. I mean, you know, we have to give them credit so far. They have actually already enacted the first recommendation, which was a full, absolute and frank apology for the discrimination that's happened. Um, and they did do that, they've, they've done that, um, you know, at one minute past midnight, they issued their public letter of apology, and it does actually say we're really sorry to all of the um, all of the women who historically we've treated really badly and we do commit to change. So they, they are, you know, they are doing things, they are responding to the commission already, but the next step is, um, they've said it's like a three month group who are gonna meet and decide how they're gonna try and implement the rest of the recommendations. So yeah, as you say, the battle is not won. But there is another aspect to the recommendations about yeah, governance. Yeah, let's, let's talk about governance yeah. because you know, that's also an important thing going forward, yeah. um, that we need to talk about the way that the game is governed in England. Mm. So you know, at the moment, the, the dominant voice in cricket governance are the men's first class counties. Yeah. So, you know, and these are really men's first class counties. I know that there are women's teams attached to them, but essentially they're 99.8% mm. of their priorities are their men's yeah. teams. So those, those men's first class counties dominate governance. Um, but the report says that what the ECB need to do very quickly is move to a situation where women's cricket has uh, an equal status in governance with men's cricket and with them explicitly with the men's first class counties. And an equal voice. Exactly. An equal voice. Now this isn't quite the same because there's another recommendation that says that men and women need to be equally represented. Yeah. Uh, but it's important not to confuse those mm. two recommendations. So men and women need to be equally represented is an important thing, but the men's and women's games needing to be equally yeah. represented is also important. Yeah, so there's, there's no reason why um, a women's region could not be represented um, at the ECB by, by a man, but as long as that man was genuinely representing the interests of the women's region. But they, so yeah, you're right, there's, there's two slightly different things. The, the other thing that the report is very critical of is the fact that, you know, I think it's um, all bar one or two chief executives are, of counties in this country are white men. Um, and that's just, that's just not good enough. Of course, women are equally capable of, of running men's cricket as men are of running women's cricket. So there needs to be uh, there needs to be thought given to both of those issues. Um, but you actually highlight one of the big problems with that in your cricket herpes this morning, don't you, Sid? Yeah, when it's literally like how like how the question is how do you do that? Yeah. At the moment, we've we've got these eight women's regions, but the eight women's regions don't really exist as independent entities in mm. the way that the men's first class counties mm. do. The, the eight women's regions are effectively owned by the ECB. They're all utterly dependent upon their parent men's first class counties for, for facilities um, and you know for you know some degree of sharing of resources. Yeah. So they're sharing resources like media people, they're 
sharing facilities like training facilities and you know nets and things like that so you know it's it's quite difficult to see how you create a governance structure out of that mm. and that's going to be a real challenge for the commission going mm. forward perhaps what they need raf is to talk to an expert in sports government <laughs> with some experience in cricket how would you feel about that well i'm available i'm available claire <laughs> hello no <laughs> for a small fee no, no. I, I, I think that um, one of the one of the answers to that is something I have genuinely spoken about, written about, and mooted before, which is that okay, you have the eighteen men's first class counties over here represented. You then set up an equivalent body that um, that represents the the eight women's regions. Um, so it's a it's a kind of form of devolution of governance. So you have the the main ECB people at the top here, and then you have your men's stuff here and your women's stuff here. And that gets around your issue about well, you'd have to have what what, did, what was the maths two like and two and a two quarter, and a quarter representatives, representatives per, of each region, region so that it was equal voting to the men. So so that could potentially be a way of doing it and meeting the criteria that are in the recommendations. Um, and that could be yeah, that could be quite interesting. Okay, well, um, there's going to be plenty more of this. You'll yeah. be able to read so much about this in the newspapers. Yeah. Raf's got an article about it in the news in the in the Guardian. Yeah. Also, make sure you read Jonathan Liu's piece in the Guardian because it's a really important piece as well. Um, you know, and let's continue to hold the ECB to account for this because you know this. In a way, we've only done the, the easy bit so far. The easy bit is is, is apologising, and that's not to say that necessarily yeah. is easy, but you know. Ultimately, there needs to be serious change as a result of that. And that's what we will be attempting to hold the ECB to account for. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much for, for watching, for sticking with us for 25 minutes. We'll be back um, on Sunday, hopefully. hopefully. Um, we'll be at uh, a Sparks game on Sunday, oh, so yeah. we're looking forward to that. That'll be just after the first T20. So we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.